Now, for four chapters, we've been told Melchizedek, 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 we'll get there later. Now we're finally there. Welcome to Melchizedek. Who is this mysterious man? Chapter 7, verse 1. Now this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. To him also Abraham apportioned a tithe of everything. His name first means king of righteousness, then king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but is like the Son of God, and he remains a priest for all time. But see how great he must be. For if Abraham the patriarch gave him a tithe of his plunder, and those of the sons of Levi who received the priestly office have authorization according to the law to collect a tithe from the people, that is, from their fellow countrymen, although they too are descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who does not share their ancestry, collected a tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who possessed the promise. Now, without dispute, the inferior is blessed by the superior, and in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, while in the other, by him who is affirmed to be alive. And it could be said that Levi himself, who received the tithes, paid a tithe through Abraham, for he was still in his ancestor Abraham's loins when Melchizedek met him. Now, what in the world does that mean? Let's start at the beginning. Melchizedek. He's mentioned three times in the Bible, and that's it. Even though practically the entire argument of Hebrews from this point on is built on him. The first time he's mentioned is Genesis 3. That's the narrative historical account of Melchizedek. The second time is Psalm 110. I will make your enemy, my Lord said to my Lord, I will make your enemies your footstool. Well, we've already talked about that. That's already been theologically unpacked by the author of Hebrews. But then it goes on and says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So first time is Genesis 13. That's the narrative, historical appearance of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is the theological significance of Melchizedek. And Hebrews 7 is interpreting the theological significance of Melchizedek. So we have... The historical count, the theology, and this is the commentary to help you understand what is going on. Okay? So who is Melchizedek? Chapter 13. Lot did the ding-dong thing of moving towards Sodom and Gomorrah and moving in with the sinners because he did not have hope in the promises of God. As a result, Sodom and Gomorrah had been paying a tax to the northern kingdoms up in Mesopotamia and if you don't know what I'm talking about, sorry, I don't have a map. We just have to go to a Bible or something. But you have Israel along the western coast, sorry, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And if you move slightly north and over to the east, you have the Mesopotamian rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. And up there, there were powerhouse nations. Everybody wanted to control Israel. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Back then, they had an incredible amount of resources and like salt and minerals, and spices, and all trade flowed through Israel just because of docking, and trade, and desert, and all that kind of stuff. Today it's oil. Um, so all trade flowed through there. Everybody wanted to control it. So the powers of Mesopotamia said, well, we can't really control Israel. We're not powerful enough to dominate them, control them. But we are powerful enough to come over every once in a while and kill a whole bunch of them. So we will say, 
pay us a do not kill us tax. And basically, we really want the wealth that's coming from all the trade in Israel. So if you pay us a tax every year, we won't kill you. And we'll stay where we are. And of course, they know that the Mesopotamians is not powerful enough to control them as Israel, but they also know they don't want to die. So they pay the tax. So in the 13th year, the kings of Sangamore said, hey, we're not going to pay this tax anymore. Maybe they're not powerful enough yet. So the kingdoms of the north come down and kick their butts and take all of them over into prison and slavery and start carrying them off. And Abraham thinks that he can take 318 shepherds and defeat four military nations and armies. And he does it because he has faith in God and God made promises. And what's interesting is in the very next chapter, God says, I am your shield, Abraham. Making it very clear that he's the one who gave him victory. So Abraham goes up with 318 shepherds, kind of flanks them and takes them out, and he grabs all the spoils and all the people who are kidnapped, and he brings them back. And the king of Sodom comes out and says, thank you so much for bringing everything that was coming back. I'm sure he said it a lot more dignified and royal like that. Um, but he says, I want to give you a reward for bring my people back to me for out of slavery. And Abraham says, no. I don't want anything from you. Because I don't want you to be able to say that you made me wealthy. I want God to get all the credit. And that's powerful. I don't want to check or reward or win the lottery from you. Because I don't want the world to be able to say that I'm wealthy because of the world. I want God to get all the glory. I'm content with money just mysteriously disappearing out of the middle of nowhere when I need my bills paid. Because God gets the glory. Then Melchizedek comes out. And Melchizedek is the king and the high priest of Salem that will eventually be renamed as Jerusalem. And he comes out, and we're told that he worships the Most High God. So even though he's not a Jew like Abraham, who was the first Jew ever, he still worships the one true God. And he comes out, and Abraham pays a tithe to him which literally means two things. One, 10%, and the other thing it means is off the top. And what it means is you heap up everything you have, and usually the best comes to the top, and you scrape it off, and that's what a tithe is. Okay, so if you're asking if you tithe before net or gross, then you just say you scrape off the best from the top, and you let the Holy Spirit tell you what the answer is. Okay, The Holy Spirit knows what your best is. And he'll tell you. And so he ties to him. And that's what he unpacks here. Now this is what he starts off. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So he's the king of peace. Melech means king. And Zadok means righteousness. So Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. So he's the king of peace and the king of righteousness. Which only one other person has ever been called that in the Bible. Jesus Christ. And he comes out. And he's king and high priest. Now, according to the law, that's forbidden. The Mosaic law said anybody who acts as king and high priest is going to be killed. And that's exactly what Saul did, and he was killed. So Melchizedek is completely forbidden. But yet, Abraham ties before to him. The great father, the father of the Jews... Without Abraham, there would be no Jewish nation. Without Abraham, there would be no covenant. Without Abraham, there would be no law. Without Abraham, there would be no faith. Without Abraham, there would be no Christ. Tithes to Melchizedek, 
king and priest of righteousness and peace. And without a doubt, the author of Hebrews says, everybody knows, because in the ancient world, everybody knows, that the lesser ties to the greater, and the greater blesses the lesser. So, if you're doing math, Abraham is less than Melchizedek. And Abraham, other than Moses, is the greatest of them all. So what's going on here? This is the other thing he says. Without beginning or end, or without genealogy, he is king and high priest forever. Wow, has that launched a lot of views. (laughs) Basically, the author of Hebrews says, this guy has no beginning and he has no end. He has always been and will always be king and priest forever. And then later in chapter 7, God's going to say, just like him, Christ is king and high priest forever with no beginning or end. And you're like, wait a minute. There's somebody who has no beginning or end? And that's led to views. Always led to views. So the first view is this. Some believe that it's Christ. The only person who has no beginning or end is God. So it's got to be Jesus Christ. And this is called a theophany. A a theophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of God or Christ. And so before Jesus became a human, through his incarnation, there are times that he appeared to people in the First Testament. Now, I have problems with that view, and I don't think Scripture supports it. But to start off with that, they say... If Christ is the only person who has no beginning or end and is a priest forever and king forever, then it must be Jesus Christ. And of course that makes sense that Abraham would tithe to Jesus and Abraham is lesser than Jesus. And therefore Jesus appeared to Abraham and got the whole thing started and then he came at the end and finished and wrapped it all up. But here's the problem with this. First it says like. And like is a simile. Which means you're comparing two things that are not the same but you're pointing out one thing that they have in common. If it is Jesus, then why not just come out and say it? Okay, This is my huge problem with this view, is this. If you're trying to convince that Jesus Christ has always existed and always been the Son of God, and He's not a brand new idea that God came up with, and He's not something that the Christians invented, and that the Old Testament has always been speaking about Jesus, then why not just say, look, Jesus was Melchizedek. Jesus was the angel of the Lord. Why is it if that, that is such a silver bullet argument and not one person in the New Testament ever uses that? If you really want to prove that Christ has been around forever, then why not go in and say, look, the angel of the Lord is Jesus. The angel of the Lord is Melchizedek. The angel of the Lord is the captain of the guard that appeared to Joshua. The angel of the Lord is the guy who was inside the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But never does anybody use that argument. That's too big of a bullet to not use if that's really truly Jesus. So there's a big problem there. And he's saying like. And here's the other problem. You can't say that Jesus is a king and a priest forever just like Jesus is a king and a priest forever. That's like saying you should all like ice cream because I like ice cream just like I like ice cream. You're like, what? There's something wrong with you. That's not logic. Okay? That would make all the philosophers like slap you. Okay? That's not a priori or priori argument. It's just nonsense. And so the reality is you can't say that Jesus is just like Jesus. There you go. Look how great he is. It doesn't work. Okay, so 
obviously, if we really realize anything, the, the argument and the logic of Hebrews is tight. And now we've just gone into something that my little kid would say. Like the other day, Natasha, something fell down in the back of the van. She goes, they were, they were like, what's that? And then Natasha's like, that's stuff. And stuff doesn't know because it's stuff. <laughs> okay, that's what I feel like when people say that Jesus is just like Jesus. Therefore, look how great he is. Okay? It's circular reasoning. It doesn't work. So this cannot be Jesus because it's a simile. And nobody in the Bible ever uses that argument. And two, you can't compare yourself to yourself to make an argument that everybody's going to accept. The next view is that this is an angel. Well, that kind of falls apart in the minute you say he has no beginning. Because angels have no end. Neither do we. But they do have beginnings. But the other thing is this. Once again, I go back to the fact of like, The author of Hebrews just spent the first two chapters, two chapters, convincing you and arguing and proving that Jesus is not an angel. Which is another reason why I don't believe Jesus can be the angel of the Lord. Because you're saying that Jesus is the angel of the Lord, and the author of Hebrews says, but Jesus is not an angel. God doesn't contradict himself. But he just spent two chapters proving to you that Christ is not only not an angel, but he's far beyond the angels and his uncomprehensible superiority. And then he's going to come around in this chapter and say, Jesus is just like an angel. He's just completely kicked out the argument that this entire book started on. That, that's just stupid. And so it cannot be an angel. It cannot be an angel. Plus, here's the thing. If Melchizedek is this really truly this figure that is angelic, and divine, and is no beginning and no end, and he's a king and a priest forever, literally, then that's going to present a huge threat to Jesus Christ. So you have Melchizedek, who literally is a superhuman divine being that has no beginning and no end, and is a king and a priest forever. And then you have Jesus, who is a supernatural divine being who has no beginning and end, and is a king and a priest forever then don't you think you should spend a lot of chapters trying to show how Christ is superior to that thing? See, I wouldn't make this figure, Melchizedek, too supernatural, too special, too divine. Because if you go on YouTube, there's, and Wikipedia and the Internet, there's a slew of mystical possibilities of who he is. And the problem is, the greater and the greater that Melchizedek gets the lesser and lesser Christ gets because the author never ever spends time trying to prove how Christ is far greater than Melchizedek. And now you have two great divine beings who are equal to each other. So why Christ? So that's another reason why Melchizedek can't literally be something that great because the author once again has just shot his argument in the head again. So who is Melchizedek then? Melchizedek is literarily a king and a priest forever. He's not literally, he's literarily. Okay? I know I'm not saying that totally right, but I'm trying to pronounce it as much as I can to make the distinction. So, here's how it works Genesis is the book of genealogies. Okay? I don't know the last thing you read it, but it's like genealogy after genealogy and genealogy. There's ten genealogies, or Toledots. 
in the book of Genesis. And the Bible's full of genealogies. And anybody who's anybody has a genealogy. The only people who don't have genealogies are functionary characters that just walk on and off like really quickly. But everybody has a genealogy. In the book of genealogies, this great king and high priest has no genealogy. The Jews who are obsessed with genealogies, this king and high priest has no genealogy. What's going on? In the book of genealogies, this guy has no genealogy. In Psalm 110, that you're in the order of Melchizedek, this guy has no genealogy. So the question you have to ask yourself is not that Melchizedek literally has no beginning or end, but what is God trying to say by giving this guy no genealogy in a book of genealogies? Now I keep repeating, but that's important because we don't think like Jews, so that's not really as weighty as it would be for a Jew who's obsessed with genealogies. And so is this. Have you ever tried to compare the Trinity to a three-leaf, three-leaf clover? Kind of pathetic. Or an egg. Or the, probably the best thing I've ever heard is quarks inside of a cell, but still that's pathetic. I mean, have you ever tried to explain how Jesus is God and human with human analogies? That's what Melchizedek is. In a book that's all about Christ, God has set an analogy, a typology, in the Bible to give you an idea of what Christ will be one day. You want to know what something really great is? It's a figure that is king and high priest. And Abraham, by tithing to him, shows that that's a great figure. Look for that kind of a person. Oh, here's Jesus Christ. And so it's a typology. I'll give you an example. Snow White and the Seven Drawers. Snow White and the Seven Drawers has been around for a long time. Okay? Now, when my mom was growing up, and I don't know whether she watched it when she was growing up, but let's just say she did. Um, not like we had a lot of conversations about Snow White and the Seven Drawers. But when my mom was growing up, she watched Snow White and the Seven Drawers. And does Snow White have a birth in the movie, in the story, in the cartoon? No, you're never told about the birth. When the movie begins, she's already alive. We don't ever learn about her parents. She never, ever gets old. She never dies. Now, she goes to sleep, but she never dies. We don't see any of her descendants. When my mother watched her as a kid, Snow White had no beginning or end. It was always young and beautiful every single time she watched it. When I came along and watched it, Snow White had no beginning or end. It was always young and beautiful. When my kids watch it, Snow White will be no beginning or end and will always be young and beautiful. No matter how many times you come to Snow White, she never ages and never has a beginning and an end. And she's always Snow White, young and beautiful forever. That's why we call it a classic. You've got the Jews who are going to pass the Bible on for thousands of years. And thousands and millions of Billions of people are going to read it. And every single time you read the story in a book of genealogies, this great figure has no genealogy. And every time you read it, he is always king and high priest. And because there is no comparison to Jesus Christ, because there is no earthly example of, because there is no angel that comes anywhere close to demonstrating it, the best analogy of what we can have to give us a picture of what we're looking for 
is a literary, literary device. In the book of genealogies, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, Melchizedek always lives, never dies, and is always king and high priest to the Jews. And so just like that, Jesus literally has no beginning and no end and is a king and a priest forever. Because the best thing I can do to give you an idea of what you're looking for is build a literary figure into my word of God. Because there is nothing in creation that comes anywhere close to comparing it. So I'm going to build somebody in literature because you're less likely to worship that figure, even though the internet has shown that some people do. Because we can worship anything. (laughs) Somehow we make it work. And so that's what God is doing. Because if God pointed to an angel, well, we're surrounded by angels. And we can worship them. In fact, we do. If he pointed to some other divine being or an animal, but if he points to a literary figure that only exists on the pages of a Bible, then it's much harder to make that thing superior to Christ. He may be mysterious and he may confuse you, but you're less likely to bow down and worship to it. And it does not present a threat to the sovereignty of Christ. And so that's hard for us to get used to because we live in a culture where we think so literally and logically all the time and we have to explain how everything works and we want to know how everything works and we pride ourselves on it, that we can just figure it out. And we pride ourselves in the fact that we live in a world where literature and movies are completely unrealistic. Because in our culture, movies are not real. We want to dream and imitate what we see in the movies. We don't like our lives, so we invent some fantasy that we can replay in our mind to escape the depression we're in. But when you go to Eastern movies in the Eastern world, you ever wonder why a lot of like Asian films, like they don't always work out well at the end? Like the guy gets the girl, but then he dies. Or he gets the girl, but he doesn't defeat the enemy and that kind of stuff. Because in a lot of the Eastern world, they're not interested in wanting to imitate art. They're interested in wanting art to explain life. You go to Greek mythology. Persephone is kidnapped from her mother, Demetra. And she's kidnapped by Hades and goes into hell. And because they're so sad and depressed, everything in creation dies. And then the gods say, we can't have that, so you've got to let her out for half of the year. And she comes out for half of the year, and everything comes back to life. The story explains the seasons of the planet. Right? You go in the Asian films, and a lot of them don't end out well, because life doesn't always end perfectly, happily go ever after. And so it explains why sometimes you don't always get the girl. You go into mythologies and the stories, African tribal stories. They're really weird, but they're trying to explain life. And so the Bible is not meant to give us a fantasy to escape into. The Bible is meant to explain life. And so God established a literary figure in the Bible that would not literally be a supernatural divine king and priest, but would be a literary typology figure example that would help explain life and specifically Jesus Christ that is so hard for us to get our minds around. Does that make sense? And so Christ is like the example and the story. And that's it. 
And so, just like Melchizedek was not a Jew and existed outside of the Jewish nation, existed outside, most importantly, outside the law, and was greater than the father of the law, so Christ also is outside of the law and greater than anything that produced the law. So just as Melchizedek, Christ is a king and priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's order are kings and priests who live forever, not under the law. Jesus Christ is a king and a priest forever, not under the law. Because the law says he can't be king and priest. Or he dies. Now he's going to go on and explain how Christ can be king and priest when the law forbids it. But right now he wants you to get to accept the fact that if we have Melchizedek, who God says, look, he's a king and a priest and I'm okay with that, then we have to accept that Jesus Christ can be a king and a priest and God's okay with it. Does that make sense? That's the first thing we need to establish in this argument. The first thing he's saying is if this guy is like one who lived forever, kissed king and priest, then therefore we can have someone who literally is. If this guy, Abraham, who is the most righteous figure in all of Judaism, goes up to this guy and ties to him and respects him and obeys him, then that makes this guy superior to Abraham, which means it's okay for somebody to be a king and a priest at the same time. Then the law comes along, and forbids it. Then Jesus Christ comes along and does it. And so the first thing he needs to get you to accept, and people who are obsessed with legalism and obeying the law and never violating the rules, is will you accept that if God approved of this guy as king and priest, then Christ can also be a king and a priest, even though the law forbids it. And it's dependent upon sequencing. So David, who's writing Psalm 110 and says this, is in Jerusalem. And for the first time ever, there's a throne for the king. Because Saul didn't really have a throne. He just kind of moved around and he wasn't legitimately a king of God anyways. Even though he was appointed by God, God didn't approve of him. So he's finally brought the throne into Jerusalem. He's conquered it. And when the first thing he does is he brings a tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. So the first time ever, the throne has a permanent location, and the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies has a permanent location, and they're both in the same place. And through the Holy Spirit, David begins to think, wait a minute, God is building this typology of this priest idea. And God is building this typology of this king idea. And through the Holy Spirit, I've been writing all these psalms and this theme of king keeps coming up over and over again. And and maybe somewhere in his heart, God begins to lay on him like, there's no way I can accomplish the things that the psalm says I'm supposed to be as a Davidic king. And then he begins to write about the priest. There's no way the priest can accomplish things that the scripture says we can do. And all of a sudden, for the first time ever, king and priest are in the same location. What if? Now, obviously, I'm putting a lot of thoughts into David's mind. But at the same time, all of a sudden, David pins these words. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, which is impossible. Nobody in my line could ever do that. 
And then the Holy Spirit led me to say, you are a king and a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit led David to talk about a king. But there's no human that could ever accomplish that. And in the very next line, the Holy Spirit led David to write about a priest that is not allowed to be that according to the law. And it put it together into both one figure. And you've got to begin to wonder how many nights David stayed up trying to figure that one out. And so he begins to think. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this and says, wait a minute. If under the law, you're not allowed to be king and priest, and yet David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing about a king and a priest, then the only example we have of that is Melchizedek. Will we return again to a time where a figure will be a king and a priest? And the only way that can happen is if the law doesn't exist anymore. Because the law forbids it. And that begins to spin the wheels. Now, how many Jews started putting that together? But that's based on sequencing. You have to understand that pre-law, king and priest, under the law, you can't have it. Then through the Holy Spirit, under the law, says king and high priest. So that's where the author of Hebrews is going to launch off and say, therefore, can we have the law? Are we still under the law? Because the law forbids something that David said must exist through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this begins to begin the seed of why we're not under the law anymore in the book of Hebrews. See, Paul goes other places in Galatians. He goes other places in Romans. But the author of Hebrews starts with, you can't have king and high priest. But you can, pre-law. So therefore, there must be a time where the law will cease. And in fact, when we get to chapter 9, he will use the word obsolete. And so that's where we're going. That's where the sequencing is taking us. And so he says this, just like this figure, literally, Christ is, sorry, literarily, Christ is literally. Now think about how great he is. Even Abraham blessed was blessed by him, and everybody knows that the greater blesses the lesser. Now he begins to build it even more. So, if Abraham is lesser than the order of Melchizedek, then that means if Abraham is greater than Levi, because everybody knows the descendants of someone is lesser than the ancestor, then that means that Levi has to be less than Melchizedek. Which means the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the order of a king and a priest that exists outside the law. Because that's the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek is king and priest outside the law. The order of Leviticus, or sorry, the order of Levitical priesthood is only priests, separate from king, bound within the law based on birth and genealogy. The order of Melchizedek is king and priest both based on an oath from God. So now he told you how much you can trust in the oath of God in chapter 6. Later in chapter 7, he's going to say that God took an oath on Jesus as king and priest. Now you see where we're going? Does this make sense? So inside the law, you can only be priest or king. King can only come from Judah based on genealogy. Priests can only be priests based on genealogy of Leviticus. And that's the only way you can be king or priest, separate from each other. But in the order of Melchizedek, you don't need the law. You can be king and priest 
And you don't have to have the right genealogy. You just have to have God swear you in. So just like that, Christ is in that order. So here's the thing. Some people say, well, wait a minute. If Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, then didn't he have to get his priesthood from Melchizedek? Like Melchizedek passed it on to somebody else and passed it on and passed it on to Jesus, right? So that means Jesus comes from Melchizedek in some way? No. Because the order of Melchizedek means that you don't have it being handed down to you from ancestors because he doesn't have any ancestors. And he's not passing it on to any descendants because he doesn't have any descendants. He's a priest because God swore him in. Which means Christ doesn't have to come from Melchizedek. Christ just has to be sworn in outside of the law without a genealogy saying that you have to come from a certain tribe. Does that make sense? And so he goes on to this. And from the tribe of Judah, no one ever spoke of priest because Jesus is not allowed to be a priest according to the law. Verse 5, And those of the sons of Levi who receive the priestly office have authorization, authorization according to the law to collect a tithe from the people, that is, from their fellow countrymen, although they too are descendants of Abraham. So their authorization comes from the law, which says the only way they are authorized to collect a tithe from people is because they are born to the right tribe. Where Melchizedek was authorized to collect a tithe from anyone, Abraham was not his countryman. He can collect the tithe from anyone, and he's allowed to collect the tithe because he was sworn in by God. So therefore, Jesus can receive our praise and bless us from whatever tribe and language and nation you're from because he's in the order of Melchizedek. Does that make sense? The priest can only serve a Jew, where Christ can serve all people because he's not a priest based on genealogy. He's a priest sworn in by God outside the law. And that's where he's going. This is where he's going. But Melchizedek, who does not share their ancestry, collected the tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who possessed the promise. Now, without dispute, the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, while in the other, by whom is affirmed to be alive. The priest kept dying over and over and over and over again. And every single time you read the Bible... The priest has a beginning and the priest has an end. But every time you read the Bible, Melchizedek is still a priest, still collecting tithes and never dying on you. So just like that, Christ isn't going to die on you. You don't have to figure out who the new priest is this year. You don't have to figure out whether the new priest has different tithing requirements than the last guy. You don't have to figure out whether this priest is corrupt or not. You don't have to figure out whether this priest is actually doing his devotions or not and really is right with God in order to make your atonement significant and trustworthy for God. Because your high priest is perfect, the Son of God, who has no beginning and end, and is sworn in by an oath, but not by ancestry, and lives forever and will not die on you. Now, he's not saying that right now in this chapter, but he will in the next chapter. Now, think about how grave it is. He says, one can even say that when Abraham was paying a tithe to Melchizedek, Levi was paying the tithe to Melchizedek because Levi was in the loins of Abraham. That's his ancient way of saying the DNA of all of Abraham's descendants, the genetic makeup was all inside of Abraham. 
So if Abraham is tithing to Melchizedek, then his DNA and all of his genetics for every possible Jew combination that there is, it's going to come for thousands of years, was all inside of him. So technically, the entire Jewish nation tied to Melchizedek. Therefore, all the Jews, all the tribes, all the law, all the great figures are all lesser than Melchizedek, one who is both king and priest, sworn by God outside the law. Therefore, how dare you say that Christ cannot be king and high priest outside the law. Because if Melchizedek was approved by God, then God can do it again. Does that make sense? Now for some of us, you're like, okay, big whoop. Because we don't live and breathe the law. But for the Pharisees, who I think by now we realize really were sticklers to the law, you're going to have to do a lot of work to prove to them how Christ can violate the law and it's okay especially when the law was given by God. And that's where we're going next to. Now, okay, wait a minute. If the law was given by God, then the law is good, so why now is it okay to violate the law? And if Jesus is violating the law, does that make him a sinner? No. Because this is not just the law. The law was not meant to be the entirety of God's plan. The law was not meant to be the entirety of the typology of Jesus. The law was not meant to save, and the law was not meant to be forever. And this is why the author of Hebrews goes back to Abraham pre-law and says, look, by faith he believed. Pre-law, Abraham's a great example. Pre-law, Enoch. Pre-law, Adam. Pre-law, Abel's blood crying out for the ground. All these typologies that are all pre-law that all develop Christ just as legitimately as anything in the law. Therefore, the law is good, it's just not an end-all comprehensive thing to all things. Does that make sense? Now, I know I might have just thrown a hand grenade under the door and walked away on you. But, we're, but that's what we're going through. I mean, the rest of Hebrews is going to unpack this. I mean, I, unless you want to hang around for several more hours and finish the book, we're going to have to stop without exploding on you and me walking away. If that unlaunches a whole of ideas that you don't understand. But this is what he's saying. He has to start with this. If one of the most important verses in the entire Bible is Melchizedek as king and high priest and Christ is in that order, then that's where he starts. And where he starts is he has to show you that Christ can be a king and a priest, sworn in by God, and legitimately approved by God, if Melchizedek was able to be that. And if Melchizedek can, then Christ can. And so like Melchizedek, Christ is. But unlike Melchizedek, the first six chapters that we've just talked about, and then all the chapters that are yet to come. Okay? So we need to understand that Melchizedek is a great figure that helps us understand Christ. But we also can't build up Melchizedek so much that all the arguments before and after Hebrews just becomes invalid and falls apart. Does that make sense? All right, so Christ is in the order of Melchizedek. Literarily, as a typology. Just like Abraham sacrificing Isaac is not a perfect example of Jesus dying on the cross for the Father, but it does give us a pretty good picture of what to look for in a pathetic, failed, flawed creation. Does that make sense? All right. Lord, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you that you have woven such a beautiful, complex, pre-thought out, perfectly reasoned and put together 
plan for Jesus Christ. I think there are so many things that you built into creation, into the history, the story, the lives, the faith of people who have come before us that all point to the idea that Jesus has been your intention all along. And because there's nothing in creation that can come anywhere close to painting the picture of Christ, you have given us millions of little mini snapshots here and there. And we can see your divine fingerprint on all of them because they so perfectly fit together. Even though they were developed by hundreds of men and several different continents and many different languages over thousands of years of history. And they all perfectly fit together to point towards Christ. I pray as we go through this that it continues to point to who Christ is. That there is none like Him. That none can ever accomplish what that is. But at the same time, I pray that that would not only lift up Christ high and mighty in our minds and in our devotion and our perseverance of who He is and that all other things would pale in comparison that one of our greatest assurances is that the more we understand Christ, the more that everything else pales in comparison and our passion and devotion becomes so much greater to Him that that assures us that we know Him. But I also thank You that through all this typology, You're also showing us that You're doing the same thing in our lives. That every moment... And everything that we do and everything that we are and every devotion and every person who speaks into our life and every aha moment and every moment of suffering, you are weaving those all together in a beautiful picture of our redemption and making us into a new creature in Christ. And that the only way that all this randomness in the world really truly fits together into a pattern where you've intended it for good to finish the work in us should point to the fact that you are working our life and making us a part of redemption history just as much as any figure in the Bible. I thank you that even though your revelation has, is final in Jesus Christ, your plan of redemption and your story of redemption is not finished. And it continues in Christ and us. In Jesus' name, amen.